This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Mad Scientist Podcast. I've been hearing some really cool feedback from listeners through Facebook, email, Podbean, and Twitter, and I'm working hard to keep making the podcast as good as I possibly can. At the same time, I'm finishing up my PhD in the coming months, with a hopeful graduation date sometime in late January or early February. So I've been spending some time planning out future episodes, trying to get a handle on what philosophers I should read up on or what notes from my time in school I should look back to, and just trying to find general ways to make the show better for you listeners. One thing I would love to try is a segment each episode where I answer listener questions, maybe at the end of the shows, or perhaps as their own smaller things I would put up on YouTube or something. If you would like to hear something like that, I suggest you reach out, or if you have a pressing scientific-ish question you would like answered, please ask me. Since this is one of two episodes on the way to Halloween, I thought we would do a topic that at the very least scares me a great deal. And it doesn't scare me because the things themselves are scary or because there have been particularly good versions of these movie monsters recently, although of course there have been. It's because the topic is one that I find sort of exasperating personally. This movie and TV monster has become almost too popular, sort of overplayed in pop culture in my opinion, to the point where I have started to grow weary of seeing them out there. The monster I'm talking about, or should I say the heaping unending mass of monsters, are zombies. I remember when the zombie thing really started heating up. It was back when I was in high school, so around 2006, and comics like The Walking Dead, movies like Shaun of the Dead, and video games like Dead Rising, and all kinds of zombie-centric things that had dead in the title were coming out. The zombie survival guide had seemed to take the US by storm, as well as the book World War Z, which actually caused me to lose some sleep after I first read it. People would argue about which weapon was best for a zombie apocalypse, if zombies would be fast or slow, if you would be better off in the mountains or on a boat. It was something that just piqued the imagination of people. But over time, zombies sort of lost their hard edge, becoming more of a nuisance than a real threat. I think part of that is the fault of one of my favorite TV shows on right now, The Walking Dead, in popularizing zombies to such an extent that everything zombie-related became part of one whole culture of zombie fighting. Even now, when I watch new episodes of The Walking Dead, I like to joke that I'm suffering from something I call zombie fatigue syndrome. When a zombie's on screen, or even a rival human faction for that matter, I'm not scared or nervous or upset. I'm just genuinely annoyed that these other stupid ass people, or these slow, boring zombies, are getting in the way of gripping interpersonal drama and stopping Rick and the team from getting civilization off the ground. Like, okay, zombies happened. It's been a few months. Get your shit together and stop killing other humans, you idiots. You're going to need other humans to survive more than a couple of months. Hell, even the intro song to this show is called Ska Zombies. Besides my zombie fatigue syndrome, I think the idea of zombies can still be pretty scary. Just not for the reasons that people seem to think about when writing TV shows or movie scripts. I think Shaun of the Dead probably got it the closest to how I would personally picture a zombie apocalypse. 
slow moving things that aren't really dangerous on their own, but get them in a large group and you are screwed. It's the sheer number and unthinkingness of zombies that make them scary. Like a natural disaster with some semblance of a motive. That motive, of course, being to eat our delicious brains. On this show, I'm not going to go into how I think a zombie virus would happen, or if I think zombies could live for a few months or a few years, or other stuff like that, because I think it's been pretty exhaustively covered by others. Instead, I'm going to touch on some of the zombie fears that I find most compelling, and talk about some of the stuff that doesn't immediately pop to mind when thinking about a zombie apocalypse, but things that I think we'd all need to figure out when a zombie virus ever spreads. Welcome to the Mad Scientist Podcast! Tonight's episode, the only cure for zombie fatigue syndrome is more brains! Any discussion of zombies has to start with a historical talk of zombies, or the living dead. The first real instance of zombies showing up in the popular imagination of the United States was during the occupation of Haiti from 1915 to 1934. The local peoples, and more specifically the slaves that were brought over, had created a sort of mix of all of their traditional beliefs they held and morphed them into the voodoo that we understand today. One part of this tradition was that slaves who were brought to Haiti could be released in the afterlife if they pleased the god Baron Semedi, who would bring them back from the dead to the homeland of Africa. But if you displeased the god... He would instead make you exist as a slave forever, working in the fields for all eternity as a zombie. These religious beliefs were then moved into the American pop culture by the book The Magic Island by William Seabrook, and his citation of the Haitian Criminal Code is what appears to be an actual legal recognition of zombies. It says, quote, Also shall be qualified as attempted murder the employment which may be made by any person of substances which without causing actual death, produce a lethargic coma more or less prolonged. If, after the administering of such substances, the person has been buried, the act shall be considered murder no matter what result follows. End quote. For a while, this was sort of the popularly non-scientific sort of scientific explanation of zombies. Basically that these were people who were being constantly drugged, so that while they were not the living dead... They were basically unconsciously working in the field. This was supposedly caused by the implementation of some cocktail of local herbs or compounds that would induce a sort of walking coma state. The ethnobiologist Wade Davis even went to Haiti to study under a voodoo priest to learn his secrets, and particularly to investigate the use of these zombie powders. This was chronicled in his book The Serpent and the Rainbow. According to Davis, a zombie was created by the use of a zombie powder, which could be given to a person through food or drink, or even given by first mixing the powder with broken glass, then rubbing it onto the victim's skin, creating a wound where the uptake of the chemicals could take place. Supposedly, the powder contained a ground-up sample of pufferfish, marine toad, and hyla tree frog, all of which secrete toxic substances, as well as human remains and some other locally sourced and artisanally crafted ingredients, I'm sure. You know, stuff like ground-up spiders and lizards and weird plants. Another paste made of datura, a flower also known as devil's trumpet, was then used to keep the zombie comatose and delirious, 
since Datura contains tropane alkaloids that produce a range of seriously impairing mental effects. Specifically, Datura causes symptoms such as delirium, amnesia, severely dilated pupils that can cause eye pain when exposed to light, and other mental effects that can cause violent or weird behavior. Now, this is sort of the pseudoscientific explanation. However, others have claimed that the voodoo shaman or witch was controlling the person by the control of their life force or soul, removing their consciousness and leaving behind only the shuffling husk. Supposedly, there have even been cases where real zombies have been found. One that Wade Davis was particularly invested in was that of Clavius Narcissa, who supposedly wandered back into his village after 18 years of being officially dead. Davis, after investigating the claims of Narcissa, believed that he had in fact been a slave over the last 18 years before he showed back up, and came up with a potential method in which the attack could have occurred. He claimed that Narcissa was pointed out for attack by his brother due to an argument over land. The brother had Narcissa attacked by a voodoo priest, who applied the zombie powder to either an open wound or through the broken glass method. This caused Narcissa to fall ill when he returned to his home, and become so comatose that he appeared dead. After burial, the priest then exhumed him, applied the Datura paste, and sold him to a local slave-owning farmer. By continually applying the paste, the zombie-like state could be continued indefinitely, until his final escape once his master died. So, this is a weird case, and at the very least, Wade Davis, an ethnobiologist was convinced of the validity of his findings. However, no further evidence has really ever surfaced, and in fact, a number of scientists have since come out against Davis's findings, after having not been able to replicate his zombie powder preparation method to yield a final powder that contained the tetrodotoxin that's inside the pufferfish. Further, it isn't even clear if the preparation method that he described could have created a compound that would cross the blood-brain barrier, or create the sorts of near-death comatose states that are described in these zombie cases. So, not a lot of evidence here, but a pretty damn weird story, and one that I would at least tell little kids around a Halloween bonfire for sure. That's the kind of the historical case for zombies, or sort of where the current best scientific argument for real zombies lie, I guess, outside of the realm of some rabies-like virus can spread and cause us all to go crazy. But zombies are so much more than people being so insanely intoxicated by super crazy freak-out powder that they work on your sugar plantation for free. One really cool sociological thing that I've read about the paranormal relates directly to zombies and vampires. The argument goes that in times where popular opinion in the United States shifts to the conservative party running the country... This is points where zombie movies become more popular. On the other hand, when liberals are the ruling party in power, it shifts to vampires. A few blogs have tried to verify this, and show that there is some correlation here, at least in the data. But of course, correlation does not equate to a causation necessarily. The argument goes that in times of conservative administrations, people are more likely to be afraid of the poor taking over or being controlled by a crowd against your personal freedoms, hence zombies. On the other hand, 
when a liberal's in office, it is suggested that the cultural consciousness is worrying about aristocratic billionaires living off of the poor and middle classes. So the image of the very rich Dracula living off the blood of the poor in his Romanian town is a fitting one. One part of the whole zombie story that isn't usually discussed is the idea of just the vast majority of them being in itself dangerous. Even without a zombie virus infecting the brains of a whole group of people, without them trying to bite and scratch you, big groups can be extremely dangerous. When a big crowd of people gets excited or scared, or for some reason begins moving towards a single small exit, things like stampedes or what are known as human crushes can occur. A human crush is literally what it sounds like, an event where just an event where just the writhing mass of humanity pushing against each other to such an extent can cause people to become suffocated or crushed underneath their feet. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In some cases, these individuals have suffocated to death or become extremely hurt from the sheer force of so many bodies hitting against them. This can happen in any enclosed space, but one of the most famous cases occurred at a soccer match in the UK in what has come to be known as the Hillsborough Disaster. The Hillsborough Disaster occurred in Sheffield, England, April 15, 1989. It happened at an FA Cup semi-final game between Liverpool and Nottingham Forest. Now, this is sort of hard to explain, but try to picture a soccer stadium. Behind one of the goals were a number of standing pens for people to watch the match. The only entrance or exit to this penned-in area was a tunnel that connected from the space near the entrance gates. Normally, a steady flow of people would go through the tunnel and into the pens, with people filling in towards the farthest edges of the pens as they came in. So the pens kind of wrapped around the goal area, so there was a lot of space there. However, instead of these pens being open so that people could move to either side of them, on the day of the Hillsborough disaster, only a small amount of that pen space was open. This resulted in a huge amount of supporters being stuck inside the center standing only area, and more and more filling in from the tunnel with nowhere to go. The police on duty, not knowing that the central pens were being overcrowded and that they were not open to the remaining area as they normally were, continued to usher people inside, resulting in further flows of individuals into the confined space. Eventually, so many people pulled into the area that those towards the front of the pens were being injured or crushed to death in some cases. A total of 96 people died, and 766 were injured, just from people trying to get into the standing room area. Imagine that, being slowly suffocated as more and more people move forward, trying to get a view of the match, trying to push you forward to make room for themselves, but you have no place to go because there's a chain link fence in front of you. I mean, even the fact that the fences were wide open to airflow didn't stop people from being crushed to death or asphyxiated. Some of the victims fell into vegetative states. Others were killed outright. 
and the injuries ranged from pretty mild to extremely serious and devastating. There are pictures and videos of this disaster, and they are not for the weak of stomach or heart, but in many ways, they're far scarier than the kind of stuff you see on The Walking Dead. These crushes aren't even all that uncommon either. Another huge one, for instance, happened in 1990 in Mecca, where 1,426 people were suffocated or trampled to death in a tunnel near Mecca during the Hajj. And it seemingly can happen in any enclosed space, just from an improper or uncareful attention to building design and movement of people. So if a group of relatively conscious humans without zombie virus can crush you to death just because some security guard decides not to open up multiple entrances into a venue, imagine how easy it would be to get crushed by zombies. Another issue for the zombie virus is one that they sort of gloss over in most zombie movies, that of disease transmission. Usually in these movies, the source of the disease is unknown, but somehow it spreads to a huge number of people in a short amount of time. But could that actually happen somehow? Could we all be carrying some unknown disease right at this moment? One that will show itself after some particular trigger causes it to go from benign and harmless to extremely damaging? Well, the best case of this in the history books, in my opinion, has got to be Typhoid Mary, who spread typhus fever because of her absolute disdain for washing her hands. In 1906, amid an outbreak of typhoid fever in the New York City area, and specifically an outbreak that seemed to only occur in individual houses, typhoid researcher George Soper began to investigate the causes in an effort to combat the plague. His findings were published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. He said about his investigation into these cases where entire families had become sick, quote, It was found that the family had changed cooks on August 4th. This was about three weeks before the typhoid epidemic broke out. She remained in the family only a short time, leaving about three weeks after the outbreak occurred. The cook was described as an Irish woman, about 40 years of age, tall, heavy, and single. She seemed to be in perfect health. End quote. It turns out that a recent Irish immigrant, Mary Mallon, had been working in the kitchens. And after looking back at her history... She seemed to have left behind her a trail of families that she had worked for who all developed typhus, after which she left when they became too sick or, in some cases, when a member of the family died. So, George Soper tracked her down and she was quarantined from 1907 to 1910 and was found to contain a strain of typhus which had left her asymptomatic but which could spread to others and cause the common symptoms of typhoid fever. In fact, it was found that the typhus was emanating from her gallbladder, which she refused to have removed. It appeared that she spread this because of her lack of hygiene practices in the kitchen, and specifically her habit of not washing her hands before preparing foods. She was sort of quarantined under questionable legal circumstances, as are the people who are quarantined today, frankly. But she was let out in 1910, after agreeing to never work in a kitchen again. But, as you can imagine, she just changed her name and started working again after a few years of trying to make it as a laundress, where she made far less than she did as a cook. 
After the subsequent outbreak of typhus had kitchens all around the city, from which she was moving around very quickly to not gain attention, Soper finally tracked her down again in 1915, after she caused a major outbreak at Sloan Hospital for Women in New York City, resulting in two more deaths and 15 infections. She was again quarantined, and again refused to have her gallbladder removed. She spent the rest of her life in quarantine before dying of pneumonia in 1938 at the age of 69. The total number of fatalities and infections caused by Mary has never been fully determined because she was unwilling to cooperate with the authorities, but some sources claim that she caused up to 50 deaths. The story of Typhoid Mary shows that it isn't all that difficult for even one person to create a public health crisis. And this sort of thing still happens in the modern day. Think about how much trouble we have containing things like Zika or West Nile virus, or even how hard it is to convince some people to get flu vaccines. There are a lot of ways that a zombie virus could spread, and in many cases it occurs without people even realizing that they are symptomatic until it's too late. The final really crazy thing, in my opinion about zombies, are the taboos that they break for us especially the taboo around human remains. We're all a little spooked by dead bodies. I know for sure I am. Even just being in a graveyard makes me slightly uncomfortable. I don't like the idea of standing on top of somebody's body, someone's loved ones, and the whole thing just makes me really weirded out. Probably a big part of why I would never make a very good biologist or doctor, frankly. And zombies play a big part of this weird sort of scary feeling about the dead. They are our loved ones, but they're not. They are the mechanical and material parts of us that are not really us, but represent everything that we have done in our lives in many ways. Sort of similar to the doppelganger, another topic that I find frankly terrifying, a zombie is someone that on the outside you should trust, but it's not really them. It's something else, something more sinister. Using the skin of someone you love to cause you harm. I think, in many ways, zombies also point out the difficulty we all have in trying to explain how we can be on the one hand a physical body, but on the other seem to be something more, a spirit or consciousness that isn't necessarily linked to our physical remains. Zombies show just how shallow in some ways our thinking about a spiritual human versus a physical human really are. If we are really spiritual, then the destruction of the body that we once inhabited, which in this view is nothing really more than a shell that's holding in our true selves, shouldn't necessarily be revered once we leave it behind. But zombies make us ask those sorts of questions in a very visceral way. Do you think you could kill a zombie that isn't really your mother or father or a loved one? But which is trying to kill you? How can we know that the loved one isn't still in there, trapped in a decaying and horrifying prison, having to watch themselves kill and maim? Finally, I think zombies, of course, break the taboo on the consumption of human flesh. And in a really crazy way as well. Because if you become a zombie, not only do you lose your physical self, but you are forced to consume human flesh something that causes a very primal aversion and disgusted reaction in people. The zombie virus denigrates the person who has become the zombie in multiple ways then, 
first by desecrating their physical remains and then causing them to break one of our oldest societal taboos. Zombies are in many ways scarier than a sort of monster that can eat us. They are a total destruction and desecration of some of the things that we just take for granted as being part of the human experience. Things that we don't expect to be broken by other people for sure, and which we would be hard-pressed to break ourselves. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you again for listening. I am hard at work on next week's episode, which I hope will be on Frankenstein's monster, or maybe I should call it Frankenstein's monster, which I hope will be out in two weeks for Halloween night. As always, you can find me on Twitter, Tumblr, WordPress, Facebook, and email, all under accounts of some combination of the words The Mad Scientist and Podcast. My logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen. Thanks again. grown up me too yep me too but you know these days being a grown-up can really suck luckily we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation we had video arcades and also some of the best tv and movies ever made we lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics the list goes on and on yep generation x exactly and we're gen x grown-up every week the gen x grown-up podcast explores media tech toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I've never done it. (laughs) Right.